really do appreciate the musicians that share with us their abilities, help enhance our times of public worship. I was over here yesterday for some meetings and parking lots full of cars early, relatively early on a Saturday morning as they're here practicing. And I really do appreciate giving up portions of their weekends to be able to do that, and we benefit from it. So thank you. Thank you for it. When I was in uh, seminary, I had a preaching professor who's famous for his commitment to excellence in preaching. And that commitment to excellence reveals itself in his uncompromising standards for those who are under his tutelage. I'll never forget the day that uh, we had an assignment to turn in. And uh, one of my fellow students approached his uh, desk and told him that he couldn't turn in the assignment that was due that day because he was having computer problems and, and he was unable to print out his uh, sermon outline. And the prof looked at him and just said, sure, that's okay. Turn it in wherever, you know, whatever you want. And the student turned and walked away. And then the professor looked at, uh, at those of us who were seated in the front row and, and he said he's going to get an F on that assignment because there's no such thing as a Monday morning sermon. No such thing as a Monday morning sermon. You know, we're all prone to make excuses. We are all prone to make excuses. They seem to flow off our tongue effortlessly. And the amazing thing about that is that while we are very quick to recognize excuses in other people, we are slow to recognize them in ourselves. In fact, that uh, led one person commenting on this phenomena to say, and I quote, excuses only satisfy the one who makes them. Close quote. I have entitled this morning's message, Excuses, Excuses. So open your Bible to uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 16. No excuse, just open your Bible. If you're using a a pew Bible, you'll turn to page 1134. And we are going to finish this morning, by the grace of God, the 10th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. So we are slugging our way through here. And reminding you, as I am wont to do, that Paul is in the middle of this section of the book, chapters 9, 10, and 11, with dealing with really the issue of the unbelief of Israel. That's the main theme that unites these chapters together. And in chapter 9, Paul attributes the unbelief of Israel to the sovereign election of God. You'll remember that rather extensive section. And then here in chapter 10, he has been speaking again about the unbelief of Israel, but this time he is demonstrating in chapter 10 that the unbelief of Israel relates to the willfulness of men. Chapter 9, it is the sovereign election of God. Chapter 10, it is the willful unbelief of men. And Paul holds these two truths in tension, and it doesn't seem to bother him a bit. In fact, you might think chapter 11 would be the place where he might want to reconcile chapters 9 and 10, but he doesn't bother to do that. He just proclaims the truth of chapter 9, and then immediately thereafter the truth of chapter 10, and they remain in tension 
He's comfortable with that, and we should be also. Let me read the text this morning as we finish the chapter together. Chapter 10, beginning in verse 16, entitled, Excuses, Excuses. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This morning, as we look at this section together, we're going to see three flimsy excuses. Israel's three flimsy excuses as to why they rejected the gospel. Three flimsy excuses as to why Israel rejected the gospel so that we can understand the true nature of our own unbelief lest we sit here in judgment upon the nation of Israel, let us know that our unbelief follows a similar pattern. Okay? So we're going to look at these flimsy excuses together. The first appears in verses 16 and 17, the first excuse, and that is that the message isn't appealing. The message isn't appealing. Now, contextually, Verses 16 and following comes right after verses, verse 15 and that which precedes it. Okay, that's my first observation for you. Is that verse 16 follows verse 15. <clears throat> and that means we need to take a look backwards and see a context of what's going on here. Because we're obviously jumping into the middle of something in verse 16 when it begins with the word however. So there's some kind of a contrast going on here. We need to figure that out. Verses 13 through 15, you'll remember from last time, Paul was explaining the importance of preaching in the leading of a person to salvation in Jesus Christ. And he said that it was essential that we have a preacher in order to preach because preaching is essential to lead someone to the place where they will call upon the Lord in salvation. Implicit in that whole discussion of preaching is the idea that biblical preaching ought to lead to conversion. True biblical preaching ought to lead to conversion. That's the purpose of preaching. That's its purpose. It ought to lead to that end. But, beginning in verse 16, or however, if you like it that way, Paul is going to make the observation that Israel has not called upon the Lord. They have not called upon the Lord, even though the gospel has been preached to them. In fact, 
probably with one of the most classic understatements of all time there in verse 16. Notice it. Paul says they did not all heed the glad tidings, literally the gospel. That is an understatement, to be sure. They did not all heed the glad tidings. The reality of the matter is that only a very small remnant of the nation of Israel, both then and now, have called upon the Lord for salvation. The remainder, the vast majority of the nation of Israel, both then and now, remains in hardened unbelief. So when Paul says they did not all heed the glad tidings, He's speaking with a great measure of understatement. Now, this failure to call upon the Lord is the unstated excuse or behind it is the unstated excuse that the message is not appealing. Notice verse 15 again, it says, how shall they preach unless they are sent? And then the sending of the preachers, Paul says, he he justifies it uh, by citing from uh, from the Old Testament, from Isaiah. And it says there that just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things or literally how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel or bring the gospel. The unstated excuse behind Israel's failure to respond to the preaching is that she doesn't think it's all that beautiful. She's not all that impressed with the glad tidings themselves. She doesn't think the feet of the messengers are all that beautiful. Or said another way, the message is just not appealing. I mean, you may think it's beautiful, Paul, but we don't think it's all that swift, all that special, all that appealing, all that attractive. So how will he respond? How will Paul respond to this excuse for unbelief that the message is not appealing. And by the way, may I just say that this excuse continues today for people all the time. They don't think the gospel is all that appealing, so that's their reason for not responding. Well, Paul responds in a really interesting way here to this excuse of Israel's refusal to heed the preaching. And what he does is he reminds them that their refusal was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 16. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? (coughs) Who has believed our report? Now, this citation from Isaiah comes from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn there to Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 1. (coughs) Excuse me, page 737, if you're using a... The Bible. What kind of a message, what kind of a report did Isaiah bring that the people would not believe? Paul says that this this fact that the gospel is not appealing to the to his brethren, to the nation of Israel, was foretold in the prophet. It's, it was to be expected because the prophet said it was so. He said, who will believe our report? So what kind of a report is it that the prophet brought? (coughs) Well, here it is. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 2. It says, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. 
He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And the prophet goes on. The report that the prophet brought to the nation was that their Messiah was forsaken of God. That the one who was to rescue the nation was despised and forsaken of men. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was crushed for the iniquities of the people. He was scourged for their healing. He was a man who was tormented and tortured upon a rough Roman cross. That was the report that Isaiah brought. And that was the report that Paul says back here in Romans 10. That Israel doesn't think is too beautiful. Doesn't find it very appealing. Not really interested in that kind of Messiah. But Paul said they should have known it was going to be that way. I mean, after all, their own prophet said it. Romans 10, 16. For Isaiah says, Israel, you should have known this is what the Lord said it would be. The fact that a message is unappealing is no excuse. The fact that the message is unappealing, it's it's no excuse for unbelief. The reason it's no excuse is because it doesn't matter whether it's appealing or not. It matters whether it's true. It matters whether it's true. The prophet told them this would be their Messiah. That is indeed how Messiah came. It was true. Yet they weren't interested. So Paul responds to them in verse 17. After refusing their excuse by referring them to the prophet, he just, in verse 17, reaffirms his original thesis all over again that preaching is the means, God's ordained means of bringing people to faith. Verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. It's preaching. It's preaching. It's preaching Christ. Faith is awakened by the message of Christ. As the Word of God is preached, the the voice of Christ speaks to the heart of people, and it is that which awakens faith within them and brings them to the place where they will call out to God for salvation. Paul just merely reaffirms the importance of both preaching the Word of God and hearing the Word of God. And he sweeps away the excuse that that is an unappealing message. Paul never altered the gospel in his preaching. Never. No matter where he went, he... He sought neither to appeal to the religious mind nor to the secular mind. He didn't change his approach. He didn't soft-pedal the message. He didn't didn't leave out some of the scandalous details, those things that offend people, those things that might make the message such that it doesn't appeal to to the unbeliever. Instead, he preached the message in the fullness 
the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. He's saying there at Corinth, the people are saying, you know, the Jews are saying, we want signs. Give us signs that the Messiah is really the one. And, and the Jews are searching around and saying, give us something that will satisfy our, our passion for philosophy. And Paul says, I won't give you this and I won't give you that. What I'll give you is a crucified Messiah. Stumbling block to one, foolishness to the other. He goes on in the same book, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaim to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul sweeps aside the excuse that the message is unappealing. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He says what you need is the truth. And the truth is a crucified and resurrected Messiah. That needs to be our preaching too. We can't amend the preaching either. We can't seek to reach the ear of the, of the postmodern here in America by giving him or her what they think they want to hear. They need to hear the old time message. Messiah crucified and resurrected. And that there is life in no one else but Christ alone. But that's out there. That's our evangelistic efforts. What about in here? What about here among the believers? Does it relate to us? It does. It does. We need to recognize in ourselves the same temptation to disbelieve the Scripture when it doesn't appeal to us. There resides within every one of us a certain sense in which when the Word of God confronts us with something that we don't want to do, the temptation is to disbelieve it. It's an unappealing message to us. It runs counter to our desires, to our lifestyle choices, to our cultural norms, and so we put it aside. We selectively read the Scriptures. We pass over these things. We don't want to be confronted with an unappealing message. But in the same way that Paul would sweep aside the objection of the Jew, he would sweep our objection aside as well. And he would say, it doesn't matter whether it appeals to you or not. What matters is, is it true? Is it true? And if it's true, then it's to be believed and acted upon. First flimsy excuse. The message is not appealing. Not appealing. Second, flimsy excuse. They lacked the opportunity to hear. They lacked the opportunity to hear. Verse 18, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? They have never heard. Those seeking to defend Jewish unbelief would, were evidently trying to make the case that the nation had not been given sufficient opportunity to, to hear the unappealing message. The reason the nation doesn't believe is because they hadn't heard the message. They hadn't been given sufficient opportunity to hear it. Could that be the reason? 
Could that be the reason why, as it says in verse 16, they did not all heed or obey the gospel? It's because they didn't hear it? If that were true, they would have an excuse. If the nation had not heard the message of salvation through Christ alone, then they would have an excuse for rejecting the message. Notice how Paul responds to them. He says, indeed, they have heard. They have heard. And then he quotes Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He responds to this excuse that his countrymen have not had opportunity to hear the gospel by citing the language of Psalm 19, in particular verse 4. In Psalm 19, King David had wrote about God's general revelation in nature and how it was wide to all mankind, that it is the stars of the sky, it is the sun that rises in its heat, that even the blind can feel the heat of its warmth, and that there is none without excuse. No, not one, as Paul would say over in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Yet Paul is not speaking here about general revelation. He is speaking in particular about special revelation. He is speaking about the preaching of the gospel. And yet he uses this language from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says all humanity has heard. It is available to them everywhere. Therefore, it is unavoidable. Therefore, they are all accountable. And Paul will turn that same language upon his own people here with regard to the gospel. And he will say, all of the nation has heard the gospel. It has been brought to them through preaching. Their voice, verse 18, in your mind should be equated with preaching. Preaching. Their preaching has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Paul's saying the opportunity of his nation to hear the gospel preaching has is, is been as wide as the star-studded heavens. There are no members who have not heard. Now that causes an interesting dilemma. How is it that the Apostle Paul can write in AD 57 that all of the world has heard the preaching of the gospel? In particular, when he is himself still involved in missionary enterprise, church planting. In fact, later in this very letter over in Romans chapter 15, verse 24, he says, it's my intention to go on to Spain and to preach the gospel there and to plant churches there. So if he's still continuing in his gospel mission, how is it that he can indict his nation and say they have all heard? Well, that's a good question. And I'm glad you asked it. The answer lies, I think, in the word that is translated world here at the end of verse 18. This Greek word translated world could easily be translated inhabited earth. In fact, if you're using a NASB, it probably gives it to you as a margin note. It could be translated inhabited earth. And I would take it one step beyond that and that it could be legitimately translated, at least here, as Roman Empire. Roman Empire. The same word is used in that way over in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. It says there, Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. 
Same word translated world here. Now, Caesar Augustus was a powerful ruler in Rome. There's no doubt about it. But his decree that a census be taken certainly did not apply to the nation of China, for example. It was to be understood when it says the inhabited earth or the inhabited world that he was speaking of the Roman Empire itself. And I believe that that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's using it in the same in the same way. He's doing what uh, the New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce called representative universalism. He's speaking in terms of representative universalism. The idea is that wherever a Jewish community existed, the gospel had been preached. It had been preached. Preaching has gone out into all the earth. The words of the preacher have gone to every place where a Jewish community exists. I think the best way to illustrate that is to turn you over to the book of Acts. Chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the birth of the Christian church. And there in Acts chapter 2, it says, beginning in verse 4, that they, that is the apostles, were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Verse 5, now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Similar terminology. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and represented or residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Fifteen different language groups mentioned right here. All hearing the proclamation of the apostles. And these representatives gathered for the annual feast of Pentecost, one of the three mandatory feasts of the Jewish calendar in which the males had to come to Jerusalem to to, uh, participate, heard the gospel preaching and took it with them back to where they lived. How can Paul say over in Acts 10, you can turn back there, that the preaching has gone out? It's gone out because it was taken by these back to where they lived. Twice in the book of Acts, Luke records that even the Jewish nation itself, which was hostile to the message of the Apostle Paul and to his preaching, Witness to the fact that it was extensive and widespread, that he was a prolific preacher. Acts chapter 17, verse 6, it says, These men who have upset the whole world have come here also. Acts chapter 24, verse 5, when they 
have Paul before Felix and they're trying to to trump up charges against him. They say in verse five of chapter 24 of Acts, for we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul can say, has Israel not heard Romans 10:18? Indeed, they have. Indeed, they have. What about America? What about America today? Do Americans lack the opportunity to hear the gospel? Is that a valid excuse? I mean, while they're not plentiful, plentiful, there are certainly Bible-preaching churches in most communities. Furthermore, we have the medium of radio and TV and Internet, and there are sermons that abound. Some Christians are faithful and bold and preach to their neighbors and their co-workers. It would be pretty hard for us to say that America is without a message, without a preacher. It would also be hard for us to say that America is gospel-saturated. It is not gospel-saturated. There is much work to do. But this country does have a gospel witness. But what about other parts of the world? What about other parts of the world? Do they have opportunity to hear and respond? Without question, the last great frontier of missionary church planting is a place that the vast majority of us have absolutely no desire to go to. It is that part of the world bounded by the 10th and 40th parallels. It's called the 1040 window in missionary parlance. And it encompasses the birthplace of Buddhism, Hinduism, communism, and Islam. It is that place in the world where we don't want to go. And in fact, of the matter, it is that place of the world where we are engaged in Overt military struggle. Them trying to kill us and we trying to kill them. It's the place where 60% of the world's population resides. Yet it is the beneficiary of less than 2% of the total church's missionary investment. 60% of the world's population, less than 2% of the missionary investment in terms of dollars. The vast majority of these people have not had opportunity to hear. They have not heard that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which, what? We must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It's compelling. It's compelling. We must go to the place we least want to go. And we must be willing to send our own sons and daughters. But coming full circle, 
How about us here at Foothill? How about Foothill? Have we had opportunity to hear? If you are a attender of Foothill Bible Church, you are the beneficiary of regular and consistent gospel preaching. From Sunday schools right up through the morning worship service, you have heard. And that means that you have no what? Excuse. You have no excuse. If you are here and you have not trusted on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not called out to God to save you, you have no excuse. The message isn't appealing. Paul says it doesn't matter. What matters is, is it true? We lacked opportunity. Paul says, no, you didn't lack opportunity. You have heard. Third flimsy excuse. They were ignorant of the truth. They didn't understand it. Verses 19 and 20. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? At the first, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Paul has demonstrated that his people have had opportunity to hear. But now he delves into the deeper nature of that actual hearing. What is it they've heard? Specifically, he raises and rejects the possibility that their hearing has only been superficial. That it was not accompanied by any genuine understanding. That perhaps this whole idea of the gospel being extended out to Gentiles is something new that God has recently sprung upon them. Remember, look up at verse 12. He says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Is this something new? Surely they didn't know. This whole 10th chapter, Paul's been dealing with unbelief. He's been dealing with the unbelief of Israel. But you know what's an interesting thing? This is the first time in chapter 10 that he mentions Israel by name. The last time Israel was mentioned was back in verse 31 of chapter 9. All he's used is pronouns, they. They, they, they. But now as he raises and refutes the third and final flimsy excuse, he again uses the name Israel. But I say, verse 19, surely Israel did not know, did they? The very use of the name Israel ought to answer the question. The question is answered as it is asked in the name Israel itself. The name Israel implies the favored nation. They were God's chosen people. They were the recipients of his abundant grace. They were the trustees of his holy scriptures, Romans 3, 2. They are the recipients of the covenants of promise, Ephesians 2 and verse 12. 
Surely if anyone could and should know the gospel, it is Israel. Israel. So verse 19, Paul reaches back 1,500 years. All the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, and he lifts out a quote. He reminds them of the fact that God had warned them 1,500 years before that He intended to make them envious. He intended to make them angry by extending His blessings to the no nation, no understanding Gentiles. Beyond that, He further strengthens His rebuttal by an appeal to the prophet Isaiah. Verse 20. And by doing so, he scoops up the entire Old Testament. He has the law under Moses. He has the prophets under Jeremiah. And the law and the prophets is a way to refer to the whole Old Testament. Paul says your own scriptures of which you were the trustees has always predicted just such a thing. Verse 20, Isaiah is very bold. And he says, I was found by them who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. This is kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser, by the way. That is, that if those who weren't looking found him, then those who were looking, should be looking, ought to have what? Found him. They ought to have found him. Way back in Isaiah. Way back in Isaiah. 700 years before. Isaiah had predicted that the Gentiles who had no Bible background were not seeking God's righteousness. Romans 9 verse 30. They ended up finding it. They ended up finding it. Therefore, if the pagans can find it, if the pagans can understand the Gospel... And Israel ought to as well. There's no excuse. Paul's answer to the excuse that it's too hard to understand. It's we didn't really know what it all was all about. That's why we don't believe. God, you you surprised us. You popped it on us. She says your own scriptures have predicted it. They predicted it right along, all the way through. And not only that, they've predicted the reality that a, that a pagan group of people who had no interest in God's righteousness, had not the sacred scriptures, were outside the covenant, were an unenlightened people. Nonetheless, they can and do understand and respond to the gospel. Therefore, you who are religiously gifted, you who are highly favored, you who have had nothing but opportunity, you have no grounds for your excuse. No grounds at all. Let me apply it to us here. Let me speak here to those among us who do not believe. with a heart's desire to see you turn 
and call upon the Lord, let me just say this to you. That if a child, that if a child here at Foothill can understand the gospel and call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, then as an adult, you have no excuse. You have none. The reality of children coming to faith in Christ makes adults only that much more culpable. Response to the multitudes who were confused by his message. Let me remind you what Jesus said in John 7 and verse 17. He said, if any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Beloved, the ability to understand is directly tied to the willingness to hear and respond. Paul has demonstrated conclusively that the excuses for Jewish unbelief are all bogus. They're flimsy. They don't hold up. They're fake. They're shams. The unappealing message, the lack of opportunity to hear, the fact that it's too confusing, I can't understand it. Paul says that is all nothing. Nothing. Verse 21, he reveals the real reason for their unbelief. Their unbelief is not a lack of opportunity. Their unbelief is not due to a deficiency in their ability to understand. Their unbelief is due to a disobedient and argumentative heart. Verse 21, as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate or argumentative people. The depth of their guilt, the depth of their guilt is revealed in the fact that God has not been passive towards the nation of Israel. He has not been passive at all. In fact, what he does is he is actively holding out his hands. He's calling them to come. He's like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Stretching forth his arms, welcoming them, pleading with them to return. Yet to date, the nation will not come. It will not come. But someday it will. Someday the nation of Israel will come. Keep your eyes on the Middle East. It is the focal point of history. Someday the nation will come. Someday she will return to her God. She will bow before her Messiah. The prophet Zechariah says in Zechariah 12 and verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Someday the nation will come. And that truth is so huge, so significant that Paul is going to devote the entire 11th chapter of the book of Romans 
to an explanation of that future glory. Someday the nation will return. But in the meantime, how about us? How about us? Why do so many of your family and friends reject the gospel? Why is it? It may be that some have not had opportunity to hear it. That's possible. You are their opportunity. You are the preacher that they can hear. It's also possible that they might not understand. You are the one to explain it. But the truth of the matter is, the reason most will not believe is because they are unwilling to believe. They are unwilling to see in a man who was hanged on a tree the answer to life's ultimate questions. A bruised and battered Scorned and despised. Rejected by man and apparently by God. Common Galilean carpenter hung on a tree. The key to the mystery of the universe. If you are rejecting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, let me ask you one question in closing. What is your excuse? What is your excuse? Ron's going to come and sing here in a moment after I pray. I want you to think upon these things. If the Lord of God has touched your heart this morning, I want to know about that. I want to talk with you. In the preaching here this morning, if the, if the voice of Christ has been speaking to you, and you will know it, if there is a, if there is a compulsion in your heart, if it's like a hand in the small of your back, Impelling you along, driving you forward. I want to talk to you. I want to show you exactly how to call upon the name of the Lord so that you might be saved. If you are struggling as a believer, with these flimsy excuses. You are trapped in sin and you know it. And you're tired of it. You're tired of promising yourself that tomorrow's going to be a different day. And tomorrow turns out just like the day before. An endless, hopeless, discouraging cycle of sin. Then I want to talk to you. I want to show you how the Bible says you can have victory 
over such bondage. You come and let's talk. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe. For the Jew first and also the Gentile. Thank You, our Father, that in the wisdom of God You have established the preaching of Your Word as the means and mechanism by which You deliver mankind from its bondage to sin. Thank You for it, our Father, because now we can take no credit. The idea in and of itself is patently absurd. And yet, our Father, it is Your ordained means. Not because there is any wisdom or power or strength in the human voice, in the man in the pulpit, It is the means and mechanism by which you have decreed to deliver your Spirit-empowered Word. So, Father, I pray that you would make that Word effectual even now in the hearts of the people. Pray for the name of Jesus, our Savior.